Hello, welcome to the Modern Educator Podcast. This is your host, Corey Brown. Uh, this is episode seven, and I'm here joined by one of my great friends here in Las Vegas, Eric Lux. Thanks for, for having me. First, if he goes by, first, first, go by Lux. Just Lux. Just Lux. So, uh, Lux, why don't you uh, introduce yourself to the world? Well, hello, everybody. Um, I'm an educator, as he said. This is my 13th year as an educator. Uh, before that, I spent five years as a social worker in a variety of different settings, but I decided to go back and get an English degree on top of my psychology degree, and then I ended up uh, right where I'm at. So been in Clark County, Nevada, all th- uh, 13 years, 10 years at Becker Middle School, and this is my third year at Foothill High School. All right. Awesome. And, uh, I mean, what, what would you say inspired you to get into teaching in the first place? Well, it's a couple of different things. Uh, social work was something that really it was difficult for a lot of reasons, and it's not a job that you can just leave at work. You take it home with you. Uh, most of what I was dealing with was suicidal teens, drug abuse cases, wards of the state, some, some really difficult things. And in addition to that, a pay that makes teacher pay look fantastic. Uh, but uh, So I ended up... Uh, Actually, I was sort of tricked by an ex-girlfriend to become a teacher. I was originally going to be get a master's in social work, but she convinced me to go back to be a teacher and uh, quit my job, moved across the state, and then she broke up with me immediately. Oh, so, oh gosh! But uh, that and that turned out to be a great thing. Um, I I love the profession. I can honestly say that my current the worst day that I've had as a teacher was better than the best day I had at my last social work job. It, oh, was, it was a rough, rough position. So I try to keep that in mind a lot of times when we all have bad days, bad weeks, sometimes bad months. But I can honestly say that the worst day that I, uh, I'd had as a teacher, and I, we all have bad days, horrible days, bad weeks at times. But um, it was a overall net benefit okay yeah um so uh you've definitely been teaching in the middle school level now the high school level and i'm I'm just curious what are some of your your standard methods you use in the classroom to engage with students well it's a lot of things uh and i think every class is its own dynamic uh here in clark county we have a very high um student to teacher ratio and honestly Every class has to be a little bit different just because it's like chemistry. And every student is a chemical, and when you throw the right chemicals in, you get a wonderful creation you weren't expecting, or you get a massive explosion. And depending on what chemicals you have in each individual class, you have to handle it a little bit different and be flexible to know what you need to do to deal with, like to to help out and to actually reach out to those students. I would say in general, um, when I'm in my class, uh, I, I did a lot of theater work in high school, I'm a big uh, fan of theater, and I feel as though I'm on stage. And every lesson is a performance from uh, whatever material that I'm trying to go in. You have to find out what it is that they're going to get excited about. Because if they don't if they enjoy what they're doing, it's easier on me because they are more likely to do it. Now, there's no guarantee for any teacher, regardless of how uh, skilled you are in this profession, there's no guarantee you're going to 
have a hit. But you can turn the odds in your uh, of probability in your favor by again making it work that they engage. Like if you so if you spend twice as long making the lesson something that's going to succeed, you do a quarter of the work. And I'm big on cost benefit analysis. Once you have that done, it's done forever. Um, so it's yeah. you know, it's a balancing act. Yeah, I'll tell you, I've put my world history powerpoints and prezi presentations together my first year here and you know i've tweaked them a little bit every year but for the most part they're 90 percent the same as they were that first year and i made them good because i knew that it would be you know i'd use these for multiple years yeah. and good yeah you know, oh, and i totally relate to your point about too that teaching is theater for me i'm, I'm up there i'm acting i'm getting really really excited about the renaissance when honestly oh sorry guys honestly the renaissance is kind of boring when it when you know, I, I really like the renaissance okay, though i, I do it's, it's okay uh, uh, we, all, we all have our things I, I i like the wars so much more and the students gauge that for me but you know sure i'll i'll put on the face i'll talk so so thrilled about cubism and different forms of art so yeah that's that's great stuff but yeah um, so kind of on that same note, my first year teaching, um, all three of our, my entire uh, staff are, uh, seventh grade English and seventh grade is a weird year to begin with, but I was a first year teacher and I, I didn't have a clue what I was doing. The, uh, other two teachers quit within the first semester. So I was now the anchor of the department. Oof as a first-year teacher that still didn't have a clue what he was doing. So of that first year, I think only one assignment survived. Um, and that assignment I did every single year for 10 years, uh, all 10 years at uh, the middle school level. Um, in fact, I've done it slightly different versions of it at the high school level because uh, it's a Greek myth project, which, again, the kids simply love Greek mythology. Yeah. And right now, uh, again, it's 2018, as I'm trying to engage them, one of my two English classes right now is very engaged, and the other one I have to really deal with, like they're completely different lesson plans in the same thing. I'm teaching the same content, just in a very different way, because when I'm talking about chemistry, I've got two different chemistries right now. But I try to relate it in a way that they can have a personal connection to it. For, so we're going through archetypes, we're talking about the hero's journey, we're talking about the Odyssey, and for each one of the different archetypes that they're going to see in all of the different readings that they do, uh, we've been re I've been relating it to, let's take a look at Marvel Comics. Hmm. And yeah. in, Mar in Marvel Comics, so you have the classic hero. And the classic hero is a, uh, an individual that is bound to the laws. Nothing is uh, bigger than the law and justice unless the law itself is unjust. And now we have Captain America. And then you have the anti-hero, who is a little bit cocky, obnoxious, too full of themselves, a little bit arrogant, does not play by the rules and laws, and now you have Iron Man. And these two individuals, historically, will not necessarily, even though they're going for the same goal, not really engage. So it's a way to relate it to what they already know as I'm going into, so that they can make those connections when we get to the other things I'm actually trying to teach them. So, Yeah. Yeah, I I'm just created this Viking sort of lesson project activity 
that has just all kinds of Norse mythology. So I've got Thor mm-hmm. and Loki in there, and I know so many Marvel kids are going to get excited about all that. Yeah. So that's that's going to be pretty awesome. Um, but I don't know. Are there any sort of standard types of lessons that you do? Is like, it, it, I mean, definitely the way that I approach a classroom is. 90% of my lessons are very structured in the exact same way. Kids know to expect a starting discussion, uh, a presentation, a- an individual assignment, and then a group work assignment. Like, I do that just about every day. Does your class have sort of any sort of procedural outline like Ab- that? Absolutely. It's Students in general like to... It's comforting to know what to expect. Yeah. They want to go into a room and not be surprised by things. And once they get the rhythm of what to expect each day, they fall into that pattern and mentally it's easy for them to do 10 minutes of lecture notes. Utilizing PowerPoint or video and me doing my song and dance and whatever the topic of the day is, answering questions, uh, calling on individuals to, again, not fade out on me so that they're going on. I am a big proponent of engaging through note-taking a lot of uh, the learning. And the reason for that is, and this is something I, one of my professors in psychology years back, he was really big on memory tricks. Um, He was the capstone professor for my college, but he taught one section of freshman 101 just to mess with the freshmen. And the guy was amazing. Uh, He did lots of memory tricks that are still burned into my brain, though I don't want them. (laughs) Um, But he was, one of his big things is that the reason why note-taking works so much better than simply giving it to them, we've all given a student a worksheet, have them glance at it, shove it in their binder, and never read it. And they don't learn that way. And even the most reluctant student, if I am making sure that they are taking notes, even the most reluctant student that doesn't want to, to learn, looking at the board having it go through their eyes, through their brain, down their arm, to their hand, onto the paper, I am forcing it through their brain, even though they really don't want to, to think about it. And if I can get them to actively think about it, of course, the all of the research shows that that's going to improve it uh, further. Yeah. But the, like, so doing a variety of different te- techniques, depending on what individuals or individual classes need. Sometimes I scaffold my notes. Sometimes I uh, offer them a slide or give them a, a breakdown or a, a template for it. It just depends on what's going on. Um, I'm indifferent to Cornell notes. I think there's some good stuff in it, but there's things about it that annoy me too. So uh, just that's one of the big things for me. They take a few slides of notes. Then they end up um, going on to whatever our reading assignment or project is. Um, I sometimes think group work is a positive, but I also think that you have to be very careful at juggling who gets to work with who. Um, a seating chart is essential, like knowing exactly where each student is. I spent probably 45 minutes finding the perfect balance for my, hey, my seating chart. You were doing chart. that today, actually. I right? was, yeah. and it was. I went through several drafts of it because there are... <laughs> At, at some points, I ran out of places to put people because I'm looking for a better way for people to engage each other. Um, and I, th- I know that I spent most of my um, young life hating working in groups because I would be the person that end up doing 95% of it and everybody gets the grade from me. So I recognize the students that don't want to work in group work 
because they don't want people mooching off them. And at the same time, the other individuals that, if they're only planning on mooching, then they're not learning anything in the first place. So finding a, a good working dynamic within partnerships or uh, groups, it, it's a struggle. But you have to be very careful about it. Yeah, well, a new strategy that I'm trying this year, actually, I want to get your opinion on this, is at my AP class, these are, you know, top-tier, awesome kids, but generally they're the kind who dislike group work because they have to rely on other people to do work that they're ultimately graded on. Well, what I've done is sort of as like a, a pre-test activity right before a test to get them like warmed up for, you know, a 50-question individual multiple-choice test is I give... 10 questions to a group and I write you know I give them one copy of these 10 questions I write all four names on it and I say this is 10 more questions of the test you as a group talk out these 10 questions come to a conclusion on 10 answers you've got 10 minutes go and I, I think that's pretty effective because it really like these kids are on a time limit they're really you know this is their warm up for the test and they can talk out with each other to to figure out some of these more complicated multiple choice questions. Yeah, I've, I've seen a couple of versions of that actually. Um, one professor I had back in um, my, I guess that would have been my second time through, actually uh, still a good friend of my wife's and, and mine today, uh, Kelly, my wife, uh, is actually executor for her will, so Ooh. we made an impression. Damn. Uh, wow. But uh, Kelly in particular made an impression. I just happened to be a guy that was in, in her class, and then later on she's like, oh, I remember you, and I approve of you. You were the ones that passed. <laughs> she actually had a system in her class where she assigned us a massive group work project, and we turned it in, and she graded it, and then uh, I think there were four of us in the group, and when we got done, we all filled out a... Like, we independently filled out a survey of what percentage of the grade we got went to each student. Oh, wow. And I, I think that we actually... Uh, so there was one of the four of us that he didn't show up once. Zero. Like then, he, right? and, and we gave him a zero, and that's yeah. what he got. Um, me and uh, the, the girl uh, that I was with, we both got um, full hundreds because we put in a lot. And the other guy, very straightforward, he was like, I probably deserve about a 75 and it was interesting because he knew that if he tried to claim 100 that we were going to hit him on it. And that was a good negotiation on his part. And let's say we got a 95%. Me and the, the woman would get a uh, 95%. 75% of 95 is going to be roughly 72%. That's what the guy got. And then the other guy got zero out of... Uh, and it was very clear. I really like that. I'm not sure that my supervisors yeah. would like me doing that. I don't know if high school kids would be mature enough to handle that. They'd just be like... You, you didn't go to the, you know, prom with me, so I'm going to give you a zero. See, I don't think that's going to be the problem. I think that they're going to be overly vindictive when someone does minimal work. If they deserve 50%, they're going to be like, he did nothing, give him a zero. So I agree that they're probably not mature enough. And frankly, it would be something that parents would complain about, and it, the pushback would be ridiculous. But I think, that, like, at a college level... I really, I didn't mind it. Now, it might also be because I was the one doing the work, and I got the full grade. But, um, you know, um, it's just just an idea that, that I've seen, and it, it worked for that, that particular class. So Yeah, I've, I've gotten pushback, though. There are some teachers that tell me, lecture is terrible. 
that all learning should be done at a group level, that the teacher should be really a learning facilitator and not a direct instructor, except for, for maybe, you know, just the instructions of how to initiate a group assignment. But, I mean, I, I'm definitely a believer that you've got to use all the tools in the teaching toolbox. Um, and, I mean, I, I guess just that's the way history is. It's just I'm confident that I can sort of present the material in an exciting way by using my skills as an actor, by using visual aids, by using short video clips. Like, I can get kids to learn the past. Um, and I think if I was to assign some kind of group project, mostly based on reading a textbook, that kids really wouldn't engage. Well, and that's... It's a double standard that we often get from the community and educational professionals because the first thing that we're always told is that students don't learn the same way and that is absolutely true yes by the same token teachers don't teach the same way the way that i convey uh, my content is vastly different than my colleagues because i'm a very different person the way i approach it has to be different because i have my own style and the second that they that we start having a certain level of personal autonomy taken away, it impacts how we teach. Um, and that's not to say that everyone teaching the way that they're teaching is doing it optimally. That I believe that there's a, a, the role of the supervisor is to see whether or not the way that they're teaching, if they're not receiving optimal or a, um, a functional curriculum, and they're not uh, be, being portrayed the way, or pardon me, the information isn't being learned at an acceptable way, that's one thing. However, if I teach it a different way and they learn it, that's the goal. And the, the method, within that toolbox, we will have many, many different tools, but do it in, or use those tools in different ways. It's not just that a hammer has to be used as a hammer. If you think of a Swiss Army knife, we all have been given a Swiss Army knife to get whatever assignment or lesson or objective nailed. We each have to use the plethora of tools that, that best uh, fix to us. Yeah, I, uh, I remember one time I was in a conversation with someone and they asked me to describe what do I think teaching is. And I said, I think it's the skill of when someone asks you for help you show them how to solve the problem, get the answer, whatever. And when the person says, I still don't understand, well, then you come at it at a totally different way. And if they say, I still don't understand, you come at it in a third way, in a fourth way, in a fifth way. And to, to really excel as a teacher and to do what you're saying is pull all these tools out of the toolbox and you know present it visually, then present it auditorily, then present it kinesthetically. Like Eventually, they've got to learn somehow. Yeah, that's that's the skill of our job, I guess. All right. Well, uh, I don't know if you do you have any more procedural stuff you'd like to say in your uh, class. I've what? got uh, so I've got two classroom rules that are kind of unique. Um, okay. There and I do not claim. Uh, I did not make these. I absolutely stole them. All great teachers steal. Yes. When you see something definitely. that is amazing, take it, make it yours. And while sometimes we see a, a certain proprietal aspect to it where one teacher 
doesn't want another teacher stealing their ideas. I think that we have to get over the pettiness because we're all on the same team. We yeah. all have the same objective. We all. I have rarely in my life, can't say never, but I have rarely in my life met a teacher that ever says, you know, I don't want them to succeed. Of course we do. That's why we're here. Um, but uh, these these two rules are things I stole from my uh, coordinating uh, professor at Grand Valley State when I was going through. Um, and uh, he was a gifted educator. And I've been very lucky. I've had many gifted mentors and educators over the years that have really impacted me, and I have stolen from all of them. Yeah. Um, I... So the first rule is no ad hominem, which is essentially nothing against one another. No ad, personal attacks against one another. I do not care what is going on in your personal life with the other students in the room. If Billy likes Susie, but Susie likes Bobby, I, I just don't care. And it will not have a place in my room. I will not uh, deal with that because everyone in my room will need at some point to use everyone else. Um, and the second that that animosity is in there, my room is no longer about my education. It's about a silly feud that won't matter at all over the course of life. So I'm very strict on that. Now, I have a second rule, which all of my students find absolutely unreasonable. But even right now, I can see that they're beginning to be trained on it. And within a month, all of them will be chanting it along with me. Um, I don't know is not okay. Under, yeah. under no circumstance in my room can any student, for any reason, ever tell me, I don't know. I have that same rule. It's no. when Mr. Brown calls on you, I expect an answer, even if it's wrong. And, you know, even if it's half right, I'll work with you. But I need to make sure you're mentally engaged. Yeah. Uh, can I use my professor's name? Is that okay? Uh, yeah. I'm yeah, so, so uh, Brian, my professor in, in college, Brian White, he, um, he explained it in this one of his pet peeves and it's absolutely my own pet peeve there's a very subtle negligence when a student says i don't know because what many many teachers do and i fully admit i'm tempted over and over and over again to do this the reaction when someone says i don't know even after pausing and giving him a second or third uh, a chance to answer, is just to move to the next kid. The oh, kid that's I got his hand, do that. Yeah. And the, the kid that's got his hand in the air, always in the air, whatever happens to be, which, that's fantastic. That's a great kid that's going to uh, do well. But right now, this kid. And the subtle negligence is this. Most of the time, the kid knows. But we, are, we as educators are training them same way that you train a, a dog to sit on command, we're training them to say I don't know and to not activate their brain. It's it's so easy to say I don't know instead of to at 2.30 in the afternoon on a hot day after you've had lunch and you're thinking about the basketball game after school to think. And we're training them not to think when really my job isn't to just give them information. My job is to train them how to find the information when they really don't know. It sucks to ever be in a situation where you are just helpless and you don't know what to say, what to do. And we live in an era that is very different than when I was growing up. 
when I was growing up, when I didn't know, I would spend, I would have to go and spend hours trying to find someone that did or researching it. The library, oh now, no. You may not have heard of the interwebs, <laughs> but again, I want them to understand what tools they have and how to find the answer when they don't know. Um, I had a student uh, this week who, when when she says, I don't know, I respond, I don't know is not okay. And then she said, I'm not sure. And my response was, I want you to be sure. IDK. IDK is an okay. I have an answer for all of this, and I'm much better at it than you are. And she got the hint. And she um, spent about two or three minutes before she's like, wait a second, I took notes on that yesterday. Yeah. Oh, you did. You did, in fact. Can I look at them? Of course you can. That's what we're doing here. And when you have that happen to a couple of kids, they all just get the, get the message. It's very... Because it's uncomfortable being on the spot. But that doesn't mean you. I'm going to let you go. My job is to teach everyone. Um, my second year teaching... <laughs> I used to joke with my students that for me to feel good about getting my massive paycheck, I feel like there are going to be days where I, there are going to be days where I teach many people many things, but for me to feel like I earned that paycheck, I feel like I have to teach one student one thing. And today, you're the student, and this is the thing, and you will learn it. I'm not going anywhere else because I'm far more patient than you. and. There hasn't really even been a close second place, but one time, my second year teaching, I spent 17 minutes waiting for an answer. Oh, wow. And the thing is, they're allowed to use the resources that they have, but he wanted to be obstinate, and he wanted to, uh, to outweigh me, and he thought I was bluffing, and I don't bluff. I'm going to always be honest and fair with my students. Today, this is the thing. And you're going to find out how to get the answer. Look in your notes. You can utilize the other students in the room. I'm not going to have you sit there proudly ignorant when the person next to you is really willing to help you out because they want to move on. After about three minutes, the whole room gets restless. And you have to give the look around the room to make sure that they understand it. This could happen to anybody. And with today's technology... When we have a bring your own uh, bring your own device uh, rule at school, where with the teacher's permission, they may use their device only for school purposes, and I'm very strict on that. They can only use it for school purposes. But if they don't know an answer, they can look it up. There's literally no yeah. there's no question I can ask them in the known universe that they can't find an answer to. If I ask them what the capital of Zimbabwe is. Look it up. But, but Lux, I'll tell you, like, yeah. I know that kids just don't have the literacy to use their technology to find answers. Like, there's been so many times where I've said, hey, kids, go to this website. And they'll type the website into the Google search instead of the address bar, and they'll go to the wrong place. Or they'll constantly spell words wrong, and it's, they, they don't realize that... I think some kids just get really frustrated with this new technology because they've never properly been trained how to use it. Well, and that's kind of what I'm saying. We have to train them to use it. If, yeah. I can, if I can train them how to do that, I've done far more than teach them adverbs and adjectives. When it comes to the purpose of my uh, text, because the majority of what, for an English class, what we're looking at is 
they want not just things like classic literature. The important things that they need to know how to do is understanding informational text, which they are not good at. But the number of uh, students just this year, in the last month of me teaching, that circle, I've got them to the point where they are now at least circling the words that they don't know. And they're now realizing, oh, maybe I should know what those mean. Now, that doesn't mean that they are yet ready. I've only had a month, and by the end of the year, they will understand this, because this is something I drive home. And this is part of the reason why some of them love me and some of them hate me. I, I am unrelentless. Mm. Uh, like, I, this, you're going to learn this. Um, the, uh, so teaching them how to use that skill is far more val- valuable than understanding the plot of a specific short story for some reason. This is a skill that they need to learn because this is how, in, in their personal life as well as their professional life, whatever, wherever they end up, they have to know this. That's how the world works now. Yeah, and I'll, I'll say, I mean, I, I definitely do teach some writing skills, and I don't really teach research skills in my regular world history class, but my regular world history class is largely me telling stories, and my goal is, like, when somebody talks to this kid about World War II in the future, they'll be able to know Hitler, Japan, Soviet Union. Like, and I, I mean, I do teach all the specifics, and I get through it, but in the end, am I going to expect a kid to have memorized the date of the Battle of Midway five years down the line? No. But five years down the line, I do hope that kids sort of reflect on my world history class and be like, the Mongols were crazy. You know, and like, the Black Death was really bad. So it, it gives them just the baseline of the past that they can use to uh, expand on their own. Like, And I'll, and I'll say, what am I... One of my favorite events was, uh, it happened last year, and I wish I wish I narrowed down the date or even narrowed down the kid, but it was, I think it was after I finished the Black Death, a kid came in and said, Mr. Brown, I just researched the Black Death all night last night, and I know so much more about it. He was just telling me all these things that even I didn't know, and that got me really excited. It's, so, you know, it's, it's definitely the high, highlight, you know, it's... Uh, for years, and that Greek mythology project that I was talking about earlier, my students for years and years and years um, would come back to me, and a lot of the the stories that they wrote, because I'm a teacher that every word that they write, and they write a lot, yeah, I will read every word that they write, and th- that was the deal that I had when I had 157 uh, graders. Oh, to be fair, I probably had 165 because I had class sizes of roughly 35 every year, and if and it was one of the few assignments where almost everybody would turn it in. Minimum was two pages, but I consistently had 20 page papers. Wow! And I like I would have about six or seven kids that wrote 20 pages as a seventh grader. And it takes me a long time to grade them. But I would. Pages. I had one student Lord. one time, and this might be, um, this might be one of my largest triumphs as a um, teacher. Would have been my third year teaching. I, I can still see the the girls. Um, like I still remember her name. Still can mentally see the girl. I haven't seen her since she left my school. Um, she wrote forty eight pages typed single spaced Times New Roman twelve point font. And it was this fantastic. It took me like five hours to grade it. I um, believe it. But um, novel. Well, it was, and it was. 
it was something that she was passionate about. And she found a way, she was seventh grade crazy over anime. And she took her anime world and she incorporated her favorite characters and how they ended up traveling into Greek mythology and this entire thing. And while I never saw her, I have a lot of students come back to see me, or at least I, I did at the uh, middle school level. I guess I still do at the high school level too, now that they're out. But um, her younger sister came up to me maybe three or four years later, the last day of her eighth grade year. I had never actually spoken to her younger sister, but they looked identical, so I knew who she was. And she wanted to let me know that it was something that she still occasionally wrote on, and she was well over 300 pages. Wow. So it's it's kind of like, that. it's one of the greatest triumphs I've had in this. And it is. It's heartwarming. Not just that I taught her something. I taught her to love something. And I hope that she does well. I assume that she'll want to be in writing, but writing's not an easy profession to get into. But someone that's passionate and that can, keeps working on it for years has a real shot at it. So I hope that wherever she ended up, assuming that that's always always going to be her passion, that she stays and keeps that as a passion. Wow. So. And what, what, what other would you say were your greatest successes in education? What were some times where you just really reached a kid or really changed a kid's attitude? A lot of a lot of different stories in a lot of different ways. You you put enough years, you're gonna you're yeah. gonna hit a lot of them. Um, I'm really good at reading people, and at the same time, I'm also really hard to read. <laughs> I think that's what your poker player skills yeah, I, come in. I played poker for a long time. It's true, um, but. If you were to see me, I spend most of my, my time deadpanning. So uh, for those of you that are, not from, uh, that are not familiar with the term, you have your own normal tone, tone of voice, you have a sarcastic tone of voice, a full step above that, very Mark Twain, was deadpan, where you say it completely straight with no hint of sarcasm in your voice as though you truly mean it and just let it fly. And it's difficult for people to get a read on me. It usually takes at least a quarter, usually a semester, for my students. And as they start to finally understand me, and some of them never do, and that's okay. Um, again, I, I go out of my way to make sure I treat every student fairly and honestly. But as they get to know me better, they understand that my entire reason for being here is because I care about their well-being. And never knowing exactly what um, they're going through, a lot of times their silence or the emotions that we wear on our sleeves, whether they want to talk about it or not, I'm not expecting when they walk into my sixth hour class and they've had a rough day or they've had a rough week or something happened at home or they didn't sleep, I don't know their story. But I can immediately tell when something's not right. I had a student blow up at me last last year. He uh, came in in like the third quarter. So ever, at this point, everyone else knows me, but he does not know me at all. And he he came in and blew up. Whatever was going on in his life, he'd been kicked 12 times that day. And I asked something very reasonable, something, something little, like take out your notes, put a pencil in your hand, whatever it happens to be. 
something little, and he blew up at me and started to shout. And I have these t- three tiny labs, uh, computer labs in the back of my room. It's a fantastic room. I got very, it's very a lucky. Good room. Yeah, I've seen his room. So, but uh, and everyone else, who knows that again, Mister Lux doesn't play around with stuff. They expected me to again shut him down, which will happen sometimes. There, there's a level of respect that I give students, and I expect that respect back. And they all kind of froze up and went down to their their table. And I pulled him in the back, and I very calmly was like, "Look, you you don't know me, and I don't know you, and I'm not going to uh, sit here and pretend that I know anything about you. You've only been here a few weeks, haven't really connected with me yet. But you look like you're somebody that needs to spend just a couple minutes to yourself. You 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 have all kinds of stuff raging in your mind. I can't even imagine what it is, and." It's not that I showed him leniency or empathy or even sympathy. I was fair to him. I recognized that whatever was going on, it wasn't about a pencil or whatever I I had asked him to do. There was something else going on. And him recognizing that I recognized that, it solidified a a trust between us for the rest of the year. Mm -hmm. He would not end up passing my class. He didn't do any work. But he treated me with a respect that he did not treat any other teacher. And again, we, we came to, a, um, as we were uh, going through the year, he made it a point to shake my hand almost every day. He, he was always respectful, he was always polite, and I understand that not everybody's going to graduate high school. It's, it's something that I want for everyone because it opens doors, but to say that everyone's going gradu- to graduate high school is not necessarily true. So you say that even though this kid failed your class and probably failed out of high school, you still reached the kid. I did. Like, hmm. on, we, we reached an understanding. And there are things that I taught him that he will use in life. Okay. Things like learning how to use a real research. Things that, while well, wherever he ends up, and I hope that he ends up fine, as I do for all of us. It's not like I look at a student like, yeah. I hope that something bad I happens. hope he becomes yeah, so and, bad. And that is... Well, sometimes we, as teacher, we... I think we almost use this as a shrug off on our failures, where it's like, well, so-and-so's gonna end up... A stripper, like their they're, sister. They're gonna end up in jail, or they're... We're dismissing them when we do yeah. that. And it's it like, I think it comes out of our own frustration at not reaching them. It's nice for us to believe we will reach every student. It is not realistic or practical for us to believe that that's going to happen. Yeah. Our goal is to reach as many as we can. And the students that especially just fall through the cracks, for one reason or another, they blend into the crowd. And if they blend into the crowd in my class, I guarantee they're blending the crowd into everybody else because I randomly pick everyone to answer my questions and I don't know is not okay. And I'm going to engage everyone. Partly because I need to know where you're at. Oh, yeah. yeah like Absolutely. If I don't have any clue what you've learned, I don't know if I've connected with you at all on the content as a person. Um, and... You know, I, I make sure that I, I have a pretty good understanding of who they are. Even if I... It'd be nice to say that I'm Ron Clark and I know everyone's background and I've gone to everyone's home to visit them personally. And 
I have 150 students, I simply, that's not going to happen. But I can say that I know my students. Like, the uh, students that um, I have by the end of the year, if I was to keep the exact same class schedule, I'd be able to tell you personal details about every single one of them because I, because it matters. It matters to a relationship. It matters to how much effort they put in. If they see me investing time into them, they'll invest time into me. Well, and uh, I want to make a comment about that point, and it's, I definitely feel like I did do invest a lot of time, energy, focus in my kids. I have this sort of 10 minutes at the start of every one of my classes where I just sort of have this uh, either class-wide discussion or small group discussion and I bounce around and we sort of frame the ideas that I'm going to teach in the lesson. And usually those discussions are a lot of just personal stories, me being funny, me getting to know the kids, asking them personal questions that will relate to the content. Um, and I think I've done such a good job at that, honestly. Uh, I've already complained about this on other podcast episodes. I shouldn't say complained, but there's so many kids that come into my room before and after school and just sort of hang out with me. And, like, there were 30 kids half an hour before school in my classroom uh, last week. And it's... They're all former students. And I feel that I've... I, I, especially last year, I guess, did such a good job forming these connections with students that these kids are constantly coming back to see me so much that I feel like they're almost stealing time away from my new current students and I can't really get to know them and engage with them when I'm always still preoccupied with kids from last year. Like, I, and I the, understand it. I the, do. I, I mean, maybe I, I could be more of a, a hard, hard person about this, but, you know, like, I have former students who don't have a first period, don't have an eighth period, and they just sort of, you know, they, they're very respectful for the most part. They'll come in and they'll sit in the back or they'll sit at sort of this spare desk in the front of the room and, you know, they'll do their own thing. But a lot of times they're there to talk to me about some personal issue, personal problem they're having. And if I have time, I'm going to give it to them. Because, damn it, I care. Uh, but, but I, you know, I, I think around this time last year, I already knew, like, every kid's name, and I'm still still in the learning process with all my new students. That's The, the transitional phase of one year to the other is, is always... Because mentally, you, you just... You want the familiarity that you have yeah. in third quarter... But you, every single year, have to rework at it. Uh, the nice thing, uh, my other class uh, is speech and debate. And for speech and debate, I've got the same kids multiple years in a row. So now that I've been there for a few years, they come in with that familiarity. Now, at the same time, it's really difficult for my novices because everybody knows me and everyone's familiar with me and they know how things work. And they're already in a clique. They already have their close friends and it's taken a few years, but we're finally, for this year, I feel like my JV and varsity members, my second, third, fourth year students from debate, are, the team is mine now. And my, the culture that I want is for them to pull them in. And while, there's yes, there's going to be inside jokes from last year or the year before, and maybe they weren't there and they feel awkward being the eighth wheel, um, but they're like they're doing better now of being inclusive to that. Let me explain the joke to you. This is why it's funny. And while they're <laughs> laughing, they're now having a good time and they don't feel excluded. 
So when it comes to my English classes, every year it's going to be a new year uh, where you don't have that familiarity and you just have to, you have to put the time and the effort in and it's frustrating and they don't want it. Uh, now they're teaching ninth grade again. Um, they're just overwhelmed by high school, the workload, the hours that are put in, social uh, stuff on top of whatever's going on in their own life. So it's a transitional phase for them and you have to mentally accept that it's going to be a little while. And Yeah, sometimes I forget about the social aspect of high school and the social aspect of group work. And, and I want to frame this in the sense that I think kids don't like talking to other kids for the most part and they don't like uh new introducing themselves to new people they have they have uh way more difficulty in that than i sort of anticipate even now well i think different schools have different cultures different sizes of schools we have roughly uh 2800 2700 students i guess this year we had 3000 last year and we we are slightly lower in numbers but we've got about 2700 students in my school and Let's uh, just quick math. Let's say eight hundred or nine hundred students in a class, something like that. So, I guess it'd be seven hundred for for let's say twenty eight hundred, seven hundred in a class. If there's seven hundred people in your class, the idea that you're going to know even a fraction of that number by the time that you get to the end, it's overwhelming. And there's some people that are social butterflies that make themselves known right off the bat, but for even an average student, that's overwhelming and really intimidating. It's it's difficult for them to to want to put themselves out there yeah. with all of the all of the different things that they have to deal with. And while there's a lot of benefits to our society, there's a lot of drawbacks too. It's easier to play video games on your phone. Yep. Rather than have to start a conversation with someone and get to know them and decide whether or not this is someone you want to keep around and whether or not you're going to even have the opportunity to, if you have enough classes or you're going to see them enough to do that, will they uh, be involved in the same activities as you? And if not, is it worth my time? And let me play a video game on my phone. Well, and I've walked through the lunchroom during lunch uh, hours a couple times, and I was sort of shocked at just how many kids were sitting by themselves on their phones. And now that's not the majority or anything. Obviously, the majority are in little conversation clicks and circles, but... Talking about their phones and the video games that they have. <laughs> well, yeah, sure, so. that's what they would be talking about. But yeah, I was... And I even know some of my speech and debate kids who are, you know, quality speech and debate kids. They're, they were by themselves, sitting alone. And I, I want to say, like, back during my time in high school, there were these campaigns like, saying, like, if you see another kid sitting by themselves alone, go, go up to them, try to talk to them, try to meet them. But but now, like, there could be just a line of kids sitting on the wall, 12 kids deep, and they'll all just be on their phones, looking at their phones, hiding in their own online worlds. Well, an interesting thing about our society now, though, is that isolationism is far more doable than it was 30 years ago. Yeah. You, you can work out of your home, order your food, not just ordering pizza. You can order your groceries to your doorstep and have them leave it there. And you can isolate yourself from the entire world and still be a functional member of society. And it's, again, the, the major drawback to technology is that 
something that should universally pull us together where you can talk face to face with someone literally on the opposite side of the globe. A lot of times we're using it so that we don't have to talk to anyone at all. So, um, the activities, and I always push that, especially when I have freshmen, I try to push the activities hard, get involved because at the end of the day, while I remember most of my teachers from high school, what I remember about high school are the things I did. Oh yeah. Theater, football. I wrote for four different newspapers. Um, I was, uh, we did, uh, ultimate Frisbee for a while. I mean, I was just involved in everything. I was always doing something, uh, I had a job and, I was never I was never bored, if anything. In fact, a lot of my students are going through that right now where they have to make the the decision on I can have my studies, I can have my extracurriculars, or I can have sleep. And I had that conversation with a student two weeks ago and she's like, I'm a sophomore and I'm just overwhelmed. I'm like, well, you have to make a decision. You're in five different activities that are all really time consuming. Sports drama you're in uh the american sign language club which i think is fantastic you're in speech and debate you're in a lot of stuff you're a straight a student what are you going to sacrifice because this is already overloading you and if you don't loosen the load everything will come untied it'll, it'll all fall apart but the idea that she had to sacrifice something really i think it struck her and i i went through the same thing Personally, I sacrificed sleep. Uh, I pulled my first home later my sophomore year of high school. My parents were very laissez-faire in raising me. And, you know, we I had a job at 13 years old. And I was in football. And I was doing this and this and this. And I got decent grades. So they didn't harp on me for my, my grades because they were great. I was not a straight-A student because I wanted to do everything. I knew that the grades I was getting were good enough for the college that I had picked out freshman year of high school. And, you know, with my 3.5 or whatever it was, um, I don't need to have a straight uh, four point. I ended up in AP classes, et cetera, et cetera. But for me, it was sleep. And I think it's a difficult decision that uh, students are put in a place for. I think it's great that they're not usually... It's a good problem to have, I guess, is what I, I, I'd like to say about it. Because, well, yes, unfortunately, they have to sacrifice something they're filling their life. And when I think back to uh, us beating our crosstown rivals 50 to 29 my senior year, I will remember the look on my best friend's face when we finished that, that year. Um, I will remember taking second in the state tournament for um, competition theater that year. I will remember my crazy teachers. And they were the full gamut of everything we've been talking about, where uh, one of them was a brilliant linguist for, uh, for Spanish. Terrifying, but brilliant. And another one was a raving lunatic who was an utter genius, but spoke kind of his own language of idiom. And it would be a year before I would understand anything that he actually said. But I learned a great deal about life from him, even after the fact. And I'd like to think that sometimes when... We're having a passive conversation, but we just say something that strikes home at the student. And I don't even have to think it. I know it. Um, today, I got to see two students that they specifically came to our tournament today because I taught them 10 years ago. And they're in their 20s now. 
One of them is engaged to be married. They're both about to graduate college. And they came to judge my tournament because they wanted to see me. They yeah. wanted to, to have a conversation with me. Um, one of them I haven't seen in several years. One of them I see all the time. And while I had them in seventh grade, I, I got to be that teacher that when they were 12, I made a difference in their lives and who they turned out to be. Man, I can't say I remember like any of my middle school teachers with great You know something? I, I actually don't remember any of my middle school. I think that... And I honestly believe this. I think that for most middle school teachers, I think that it's a pheromone-induced coma. Yeah. Where it is, <laughs> but you hit ninth grade and you've evened out. I can tell you maybe eight of the names, but I can't tell you anything that I learned in middle school. But high school, I can tell you virtually every teacher I had, and I can tell you what they taught me. Uh, what so my first uh, first year, uh, um, my freshman year. I had two amazing teachers, Mr. Bidlack, who was an English teacher. And as an English teacher now, I credit him for making me an English teacher. I hated English. Because my, I think I have dysgraphia or something. My hand does not make the signature or letters that I wanted to. And if I, <laughs> to date myself, things got easier when I got myself a very fancy electric typewriter. Oh, yes. wow. Cutting edge. Um, but... He made me not hate English, which made me eventually like it and eventually love it. It's still probably my worst subject. And then I had a, a teacher, Mr. Gay, which you know you are a rocking teacher if your name is Mr. Gay and no one ever jokes about no, you. No, I would not joke about Mr. Gay. No, he was, and he was brilliant. He was a, a earth science teacher, and we started our very first day as stupid freshmen. All of us, because first day... We were all stupid freshmen, and it's especially ironic now. I, I wonder where he's at in the world for the sole purpose of if he's having a laugh or if he actually started this. He convinced us on the very first day of school that the Earth was actually flat. And I wonder whether or not the entire flat earther theory is him playing a prank on us years, years later. To come. And ev there. everything that we came up with, he diffused and he had an answer for, and he spun it off far better than flat earthers do. And then he uh, finished, he's like, so does anyone disagree with me? And no one disagreed with me. And he looked at us and like, you are all fools. What is wrong with you? The earth is round. It is a sphere. You can see the shadow of it on the moon. And again, th that was the teacher that he was. And he was engaging and inspiring. And uh, like, I remember my high school teachers. They really impacted me for a very... To this day, like I, there are things that I do that I definitely got from some of them. Well, you, you made a comment. You said English is your worst subject. Yeah. yeah. But you're an English teacher. It's the only subject I ever had to work at. Wow. I, I'm mathematically a savant. Um, science, I, I just, I have a perception of it. History, I'm, I just have a really good retention for history. I like remember the dates, the facts, the, the things. Philosophy, I'm, I'm fine with. Constructing a sentence and putting it down on paper to convey the thought that I have in my mind, because my mind is jumbled with 30 thoughts a second, and trying to make that a coherent transfer from, from my brain to your brain and saying it in a way that you understand it was something that I never got. And frankly, a lot of it was that for years, every English teacher I ever had 
would write on the top of my paper, I can't read this. <laughs> Zero. <laughs> and that did not make me want to write anymore. So I can teach English because it's the only thing that I ever had to work at as an individual. And a lot of my students that hate English, I know what it feels like to hate English. I understand what you're going through. Let me help you. This is what I did to make my life easier so that I could still go on. Because you're going to use writing. You're going to use reading. I was always great at reading, but writing and conveying thought, it's hard. And it's not something, some people have a gift for it, some people don't. It's just like math or science. And I did not have a gift for it. It's the only thing I've ever had to work at to be good at in my life. Well, what I always got so frustrated with from my middle school, high school, and some even college English teachers was every English teacher taught me their style of writing and expected that that should be the norm. So it's almost like every year it was a hard reset button on what was expected of my writing style. And I wish that English teachers could have been more accepting of, like, I mean, like, okay, every paper needs to have a thesis. Yes. Every paper needs to have an introduction and conclusion. Yes. But, I mean, I, I'm trying to even remember some of, like, the stylistic choices that that I lost points on yeah. because I did it correctly from freshman year but failed to do it sophomore year. Well, and it's something that we all struggle with because in a lot of cases, writing is really holistic. And <laughs> for years, they, they kept trying to do the, the writing assessment for the middle school. And in the first, I think it was in the first seven years I taught middle school, the eighth grade proficiency that they had to pass they had six different rubrics. So every seventh grade year when I taught them how to get the passing grade, by the time it got to them taking it in eighth grade, what they were grading on had changed. And I oh, was cons rude. consistently upset about it. But they, um, yeah, so I try not to do that. Now there's some things, structurally I want a certain structure, but I do this because this structure is acceptable to all of the different teachers you have in yeah. If I have you ninth grade for 10th, 11th, 12th grade, it doesn't matter who you end up with. If you all end up in different uh, classes, all of your teachers will accept this. This is the universal way to do it. For me, what I do more than anything else, I focus on trying to get them to use coherent evidence. Um, sometimes provided, sometimes from the text, sometimes from research. No one cares what you think. We care what you can prove, what you can support. Everybody has an opinion, but every opinion isn't as valid as other opinions. Some people Bad have news. the some people have the opinion that the Earth is flat. I have better evidence. Yeah. I will feel free to come at me. I will really enjoy, like Mister Gay. I will really enjoy this conversation. You are, if you want to believe that the Earth is flat, believe the Earth is flat. But you don't get to hide away when other people are throwing evidence at you. You don't get to turn away from evidence that's presented to you. And when uh, so we just, as an opener for the year, um, one of our opening short stories, just to get a feel, just to, to learn how to write a coherent, argument-based paragraph, we read the, the Lady or the Tiger. And for those of you that don't know it, again, it's um, barbarian princess, falls in love with a man she's not allowed to fall in love with, king fall, finds out, Puts him in the pit, and behind one door is the uh, is a lady that the princess despises, and the other is a tiger. And he looks up at her and instantly knows that she knows which door the lady's behind, and she immediately nods to the door on the right. And he confidently walks through it. 
But the cliffhanger at the end is that we don't know for certain if it's the lady or the tiger that she nodded at. So having them construct not just an opinion. Oh, I think it was the lady. Really? Why? Because she would pick the lady. Why do you know that? And breaking down all of it so that they can support the argument and then explain what that evidence actually means. And if they can learn how to do that, they can construct a coherent paragraph. They can now make an argument for an argumentative essay, an expository essay, whatever it happens to be. And they need to do it lucidly. And it can't be an argument that, well, I would have chosen the lady. I would have chosen the tiger. You're not her. And uh, last year I taught 10th grade, the year before I taught 9th grade. And I did that assignment in 9th grade, uh, uh, my my first year teaching 9th grade too. And one of my hours was hysterical. It was the strangest split right down the center. Exactly 100% of the boys on one side. 100% of the women on the other. 100% of the boys were just romantics. No. She she loves him. She would much rather rather see him live his life happily than than to... She wouldn't want him dead. She loves him. 100% of the women in that class, it's the tiger. If I can't have him, no. <laughs> no, she's she would not. She's a barbarian. And they, again, not just opinion. What evidence from this text supports your position? There's plenty of evidence, evidence on both sides, which is why it's a great lesson for it. But they need to be able to, to utilize that evidence to back it up, which as speech and debate teachers is significant in what we are trying to teach. Yeah. If there was a, necessarily a right or wrong in most of our arguments... It wouldn't be a debate. Well, one thing that I, I sort of get frustrated with when I see debaters is they love to like focus so much of their debate on their value criterion and their sort of greater reasoning, and they they sort of get lost in the I don't know the structure of the debate, and they don't have enough facts. Yeah, they don't have enough research. It's it's, it's almost like some of these experienced debaters feel that. Well, they don't even need to know the topic. They just need to know the the finagling of debate terminology, and they can use that to win. Well, and to be fair, depending on the event, sometimes that's enough. Now, uh, for those that don't know, um, Lincoln-Douglas is a morality-based debate, and a value is the morality that you're using at the center of your argument. So if you're arguing a philosophy, uh, utilitarianism, or deontology, or something to that effect. And then the value criterion, which is the second part, um, I guess the best way I can describe it is like a measuring stick. How do you measure morality? How do you measure uh, liberty? So if you have the, uh, the value of liberty, or let's say um, justice, and then the value criterion of constitutionality, which I'm big on constitutionality, I'm big on evidence. And as a judge, when I'm in a round, I look for that. I absolutely do Because the, the student that can... It's easy to spin opinion, but backing it up with hard facts and evidence absolutely puts a backbone on it. Now, not every judge agrees with me on that, but that's something that I'm, uh, I'm uh, very set on. Another type of debate for those uh, that are listening are, is public forum. And public forum is basically straight. These are the facts. Where's the money coming from that's going to cost this much? It's not a good cost-benefit analysis. The, um, the impacts of this, what are the impacts and who, whose impacts are heavier? So um, the, 
the idea of last year, one of the topics was, should Catalonia be granted a, um, a free state, uh, essentially? And is this a net benefit for Spain to, to grant them, or no. is it not? It's, it's a, yeah. definitely a detriment to Spain, because Catalonia, yeah, anyway, yeah. we have so, a debate right now. Exactly. So, but being able to recognize, and this is something that I often do with, with my debaters, because well, they have to, but this is something I've done for years and years, is I make them do both sides of every topic because there is a reason for both sides. What is the best reason for this side? What is the best reason for this side? And a lot of times when you're simply better educated on it, you'll find that there isn't really an answer. If there was an answer for most of these problems, we'd have done it already. There's a reason to do it. There's a reason not to do it. And whether or not we will is really the question. Well, and, you know, I'd like to describe myself as sort of a Democrat, liberal kind of guy, even though I have some issues with the Democratic Party. But because I'm sort of obsessed with understanding both sides, and this is part of me being a speech and debate coach, too, is most of the media I consume is Fox News, is Ben Shapiro, is Steven Crowder, because these guys are all super right wing, and they give me a totally different perspective. And, you know, I... I I'm always down to hear other perspectives. Like, sometimes I even troll the internet and try to find, like, uh, you know, news from other countries just so I can get other ideas of of the world and how people react to it. Well, and that you've kind of hit upon one of my personal pet peeves. And I use this a lot in debate, but I also use this a lot with research projects that my students do in, in English. I have. I am deeply bothered by the fact that you have to fact check the news. Yeah. When, when I was growing up, you didn't have to fact check the news. It was the news. The news had been fact checked, and it was not politically spun. Because let me give you the information, and you, as a observer, can make of it what you want. But this is the news. The fact that we have Politifact and Politico and whatever the other websites whose sole job is to fact check the news and see whether or not it's being honest with you again it's we're allowing the media in general to become propaganda for both sides of the political scale and when people recognize that there's an inherent distrust in the media and if you don't trust the media when they actually have something to say after being the boy that cried wolf over and over again. Um, again, people don't trust the news when it's presented. And a lot of people don't have the time or simply the inclination to fact check everything. I do, partly because I have a team of minions that I'm saying, check, fact check this for me. And I like to think that I, I do that in my personal life anyways. But it's a lot easier for me than it is for a lot of other people. And I think that, again, you want a million dollar idea, a billion dollar idea right here. There needs to be an outspurt of a completely unbiased news source again, where these these are the facts. This is what has happened. We don't need uh, a meteor fell in Kansas. Is it Trump's fault? Is it Obama's fault? We don't care. So, but yeah. And again, the, uh, the, the spin on that, it's always... For the last 15 years, it's been a real um, nuisance, a real yeah. uh, pet peeve of mine. I, I'd be curious to like take a stopwatch to CNN over the last two years 
and to see what percentage of the media coverage is Donald Trump related. Go, go, it's no. got to be 90%. Go to, um, like, that, no, that's, you won't even need to do it. People have. And that information is out there by people that are actually trying to get to the heart of this. Now, you have to be careful because certainly one of the organizations that would be doing that to spin it away from them is going to be Fox News. And they're using it for their own thing. Finding an independent, unbiased source has become difficult, and it's a real problem in our country. Um, the idea that... Okay, so with CNN, uh, this was four or five years ago, and I think, while it wasn't certainly wasn't the beginning of it, it was the moment where any level of reliability had really left their news station. I don't, I don't remember the exact details, but I'll give just an overview of it. I can look those things up later. The CEO, probably CNN, reported incorrectly on a news story. It was a huge news story. Don't even remember what it was, but it was really significant at the time. And the CEO, after it was called out that not only is this incorrect, it is blatantly incorrect. What it like? What is your reaction going to be to this? And his only response, he was not showing any level of contrition. He was not sorry. His response was something to the fact of that story had the second highest ratings our news uh, has ever had. Oh, man. You have undermined your job given to you by the First Amendment and the founders of this country because you are abusing a free press and it's sickening and and it's most of the major media sources finding unbiased things again i i can't give exact uh things but again i i tend to go with pure associated press something that's been picked up by all of the other um stations again there's certainly some organizations that do fantastic uh work out there um i think it's a problem that local stations are uh, being corrupted from a larger national yeah. scale. And that's that's a really... Corporate, corporatism right there. Um, so, again, there's, there's a lot of problems that go into this. So, well, let's bring this into the classroom. Like, I mean, both you and I tend to be pretty educated on what is a bias and unbiased source. And that is actually a topic that I do teach in my world history class. I as well. Of identifying uh, primary sources, secondary sources, and trying to see, like, is this source reliable? And it, I think just with all this uh, new age media and like you just have people who are all part-time journalists um, and the way we can like edit sound clips and video clips now, it's, it's almost like you can turn anything into your own little argument and avoid showing all the facts. Yeah. And, and that really frustrates me. Well, and when it comes to things like the media, being able to recognize what is... Let me even change that up. It's it's often, now that we, I think your sentiment is what most people feel. How much of the story am I actually getting? How much yeah. are, uh, the term in, um, is card stacking, where, uh, think of stacking the deck. I'm only going to show you the cards that I want you to see. I'm going to talk about all the benefits on my side. I'm going to talk about all the negative parts of the other side. But I'm not going to talk about their benefits, and I'm not going to talk about my negative sides. I'm only showing you 60% or 50% of the story. And I think that a lot of people are at the point where they 
simply distrust the news, which is a real serious problem because the news was laid out to be, in many ways, the single most important part of the First Amendment. Now, don't get me wrong. Again, things like free speech are crucial. They were put first for a reason. But of the five things that the First Amendment lays out, while an individual has free, free speech, a free press, untouched by any government, untainted, has the power to take down the most powerful man in the world. We saw this with Richard Nixon. And Bob Woodward's uh, and uh, Woodward and Bernstein's uh, work on that are the exact example 200 years almost to the year after that was set into place. Because having a free press that is unswayed, unpoliticized, and just doing their job to reveal corruption at any level of either government or society, the Founding Fathers wanted that. But I can say this, though. I mean, I, I even had a student ask me this uh, maybe last year, earlier this year. I don't even remember now. But they said, Mr. Brown, Nixon got impeached because, you know, sort of like he lied to the people and the people really didn't like that. Donald Trump has lied about a million things. And Donald Trump has done, I, I think, in almost every way, like if you were to believe, you know, CNN, MSNBC, Donald Trump has done way worse stuff than Nixon has. But yet he's still standing. Well, and let, let me hit two things there. First, Nixon was not impeached. He was going to be impeached. He resigned yeah. the day before. Now, and I'm not uh, giving a history lesson that's kind of important for what I'm going for. Sure. Um, Nixon, the, while there are certainly similarities, there there is a fundamental difference. And obviously Watergate is what will taint Richard Nixon forever. Now, as a personality, for those of you that actually haven't studied Nixon, um, he was an egomaniac. He was severely paranoid about many, many things. However, Nixon was a really good president. He got us to, out of Nam. Got us out of Nam. He was actually the most environmentally sound president we've ever had. Mm. He passed the Clean Air and Water Bill. And when we talk about the uh, environment, that used to be the Republicans' thing. If he had not ended the way that he had, his legacy would likely be far more akin to Reagan. He opened up uh, trade relations with China, yep, and I mean, he he did many really unbelievable things. However, he was utterly paranoid over losing. He was not going to lose the election. He won like the biggest landslide ever, if I recall. Not the biggest landslide, but it was a significant. It was a significant win, and it was. Um, again, the idea of needing to wiretap the Democrats' um, campaign office, there's, there's no reason for it. There, if we look back from with no emotion on either side, it's only done out of paranoia. And in doing so, he still committed a crime. And committing a crime is going to get you impeached. Now, he was going to be impeached. And... He saw the writing on the wall because they had the votes and the mentality of Congress was very different. The idea of being embarrassed by someone in your own party, Republicans were not okay with this. Again, his like he would have been impeached from both sides of the aisle. Oh, wow. Now, we live in a different era. 
where and there's plenty of blame to go around for everyone the idea that we impeach Donald Trump Democrats are in a place where they can try to push for impeachment but they don't have the votes and while Republicans while Republicans have not warmed up to a lot of the ideals of President Trump they are also not in a political position anymore to find the center of the aisle Democrats won't accept them jumping the aisle really for to to because it's been yeah. so hard yeah, the, like, yeah everyone's so polarized yeah. so polarized right now that the idea that I can't go to you even though I probably agree with you on some of these things I won't act out against my party partly because the party themselves will the second that you speak out against the commander-in-chief that's their guy, they're going to run three primary candidates at you. You're going to have to waste all of your campaign funds, and you'll be out in the next election. They'll put somebody that will fall in line. So the cam- the party system themselves are at a place where there's they're in absolute gridlock. Um, the do-nothing Congress of... Uh, the last eight years? You no, know, the do-nothing Congress of 29 was called the Do-Nothing Congress because they only um, passed 27% of legislation. For the last eight years, we've been consistently below 10% of legislation. what? 10%? Nothing's going on. And we're at the point where we need to start passing some bills because we have things that need to be changed. We have things that need to be improved on. We are a growing country, and we need to see that that growth is happening. Jeez, 10%. Oh, that's so bad. And D.C., I know, has, like, quadrupled in the last 30 years, but it's quadrupled and still gets nothing done. Oh, no. Well, and, again, there's plenty of of blame on both sides. Um, And everyone is so caught up in pointing fingers at the other side that this division in our country is hurting everyone that is not... Well, at first, it's hurting everyone. Yeah. And that's that's the, the long and short of it. But the idea that the party itself has become so strong, elected officials aren't representing their constituents anymore. Only a few people, even in the last few years... Uh, the recently uh, departed Senator McCain walked his own path. He did what he felt his people in his state and his constituents that elected him for the duration of his very impressive career. He stood up against the party. Um, The senator uh, in Maine, the senator in Alaska, those are the only three Republicans that have walked across the aisle. Now, at the same time, Trump being as divisive as President Trump being as divisive as he is isn't looking to pull any of the Democrats over because he currently has majority in both the House. He doesn't need them. They lower the uh, when the Senate lowers the um, the approval rating for the justice systems from sixty to fifty takes away the filibuster. This has never been done before. 
And now at 51, our current count for Republicans, it doesn't matter if the um, if the Democrats oppose um, Kavanaugh. There's there's doesn't matter at all because they can't filibuster and because they don't need to be courted. There's no reason to to reach across the aisle because they have the Senate, they have the votes. Who needs them? Dang. And realistically speaking, the Democrats cannot take back the House, or probably cannot take back the Senate. The House is looking more likely. We cannot take the uh, back the House or the Senate in 2018, and because there's only eight Senate seats that are open that are Republican, and of those eight, five of them are hardcore Republican states where they're winning by 80 percent, they're never going to lose. And the three that are vulnerable, Democrats would need to take all three of those seats and defend all 24 of Ooh, theirs. 24. Ooh. And realistically speaking, they're probably going to lose a couple of those. So if there they might gain, even be a bigger majority of Republicans. It could. It could very well be. I think that the they gain back. Well, I think that they're going to break even. Is probably my yeah. guess. I think that they're going to lose a seat or two. They're going to gain a seat or two, but they're not going to gain dominance because fifty-fifty doesn't matter because the tiebreaker goes to yeah. the vice president, like we, what we saw with Betsy DeVos when she. Um, the when Mike Pence voted for Betsy DeVos to be Secretary of Education for confirmation, it just doesn't matter. Man, yeah, wow. We definitely had a long discussion about political stuff. It definitely yeah. stemmed from education, though. Um, so yeah, I mean, uh, is there anything else you want to say about just your skill as a teacher and ways to reach kids? Uh, I guess I. I would say there's nothing more that's hopping to mind. There's certainly other things, but if you ever want to have me back, you can always okay. just add that to it and get some questions, and we'll kind of rant off wherever we have to rant off at. Yeah, I definitely intend for this uh, this podcast to be people sending me emails to be like, you know, I'm a teacher, I'm having these concerns with students, mm-hmm. how, how have you addressed them, how could I address them? You know, I, I want this to be sort of a... a, a uh, an advice-giving podcast more than anything else. I think, that's, um, I think that a lot of people need an outlet, and sometimes an outlet from people they are not surrounded by. We're, yeah. Like the, it's nice to have a third-party a third party <laughs> opinion that is not biased by, hey, I don't want to hurt your feelings, or I, I, I agree with everything you say. And then I, I definitely know that you know I've worked in a couple different school environments literally around the world, and there are sort of certain standardized lesson strategies and standardized ways to teach kids that I was encouraged to do. But I, I know that, you know, you got to have every tool in the toolbox. And I think just some teachers can be wholly unaware of different ways to reach kids. Well, and having the tool in the toolbox is the critical aspect. Having a skill, it doesn't mean that you're going to use that tool all the time, or even yeah. often. No. But having the ability to use it just so that you have the the access to better way uh, to better improvements, it just makes our job easier. It gives you more options, and having options is never a bad thing. Mm-hmm. Never is. All right. Well, thanks a lot for being on my show, Lux. Well, thanks uh, for having me. Yes. If uh, if anybody listening has any. Things that they would like uh, me or any of my guests to talk about in future episodes, 
go ahead and send an email to modern or sorry, Vegas Modern Educator at gmail.com. Thanks a lot.